Hi. <laughs> Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, as I said earlier, this is the first time I, I record anything in the morning. Yeah, I don't even usually speak before 10 a.m. on a weekend morning. <laughs> that here is, we are. <laughs> that is actually true. But it's good for a change. Also, uh, speaking of change, we have you today on the podcast, which is, I guess, the first time that we have you. Yeah, that's true. And also the first time that we have someone who does not like work as a designer. I realized last time I said, you're a non-designer, but then immediately after I thought, hey, <laughs> who am I to judge what you think of yourself? And then I, I backtracked I, quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have some meager design skills, but I certainly do not count myself as a designer in any way. And I realized when you said it also that I don't really do design work much in my work, but I think I'm pretty good at knowing when I think that something is bad design. So, like, I could be a design critic, like a movie mm -hmm. critic. It doesn't does need to know how to make movies, but they'll say all sorts of good or bad things about movies. I can be a design critic. That's pretty much like any client I've worked with <laughs> in my entire life. They're all design critics. Yeah, but it's an interesting topic. And actually, I think I, I want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about this because, well, maybe maybe you could just, like, give a super quick intro to our listeners. Sure. My name is Jack Nutting. I've been working with Rada for several years. Well, we've had the same employer for several years, Yep. but we've seldom worked on products together, but we've kind of always been alongside, like seeing what each other are doing and talking, but not really working together on much. But, but I'm mostly working as a, an iOS developer. I've done some Ruby on Rails. I've done a fair amount of Mac development, a lot of other things. And when it comes to design, like I tend to, in my own apps, I, I typically do the design work myself. And usually I just try and keep things very, very simple out of a desire to just not mess it up. Like, that's, that's like very I, interesting. Like I think that I've found over the years that when it comes to iOS apps, say in particular, sticking to Apple's guidelines makes it so that like, I know that I can't go too far afield. Like, I'm probably not going to make something truly horrible looking if I try and just make something that looks as dull as mail.app, hmm. you know? If, yeah. you, if, you, if you're at that level, I can make an app that it's going to be, it might be pretty boring to look at, but it's going to be, it's going to be fine. No one's going to say, oh my God, what did he do? I guess the you said a lot of interesting stuff there. The first one was you try to keep things simple. And I understand when you say it in the context of like Apple development, because they mm. give you a baseline. So right. simple means as close as possible to the baseline, if not be exactly on the baseline, like not customize anything. Right. And even that, well, at some points you'll have to because they don't give you default I mean, they give you default labels, default buttons, table views. Mm. But if you need anything more than that, like a colored dot, you will have to make that yourself. And like if you give the example of mail, the blue dots are not part of the system. You could copy them, but mm. you'll have still to make them yourself. Yeah, I think for almost, for almost any interesting application, there's some amount of stuff you'll have to do that is going to be custom. But I think I've seen a lot of applications that go down the path of, oh, well... We're going to have an entire customized look of everything. You know, no label should look like a normal label. No button should look like a normal button. Yep. Because we have our designer who we have 
working with us who is a genius <laughs> and this person <laughs> this person's ideas are way better than any idea apple ever had and so we're going to do this yeah nothing grinds my gear more than people who want to break things just for the sake of doing so but i i i haven't finished my thought uh, just to go okay. back to the simple in the context of apple it makes sense but as soon as you leave that bubble it becomes extremely interesting because simple is is hard making mm. something simple is way harder than not making it simple and a lot of people like because they think they don't have the necessary design skills they say okay, I'll try to make this as simple as possible. But the problem is that in design, when you make it simple, the skills that you don't like, that you don't have enough of become more apparent because then that's, it's about spacing. It's about font size. It's about typography. And it's about mm. like how, how you just put different elements and how they relate to each other. And in my experience, that's the last thing that comes in a designer's career. Like they learn colors first and they learn shapes and they learn tools. And then always like you, you would tell apart a really, really good designer from an up and coming designer by these things, spacing. Mm -hmm. and, and when you keep it simple, it's the spacing that defines the design. So I find this right. like an, a really interesting thing that people think but think of it a certain way but in reality it's it's in the other way around right that is interesting and and you also mentioned in the context of a baseline that in ios development you have a baseline and you have if you're just using standard components and you're building things with the interface builder it will give you guidelines to show you spacing between elements but when you're coming to comes to web development there <laughs> is out out of the box nothing you know and this this is where my design skills absolutely just fall apart because like, I understand HTML perfectly well. I can make an HTML document, but when it comes to making it look good, I feel like, first of all, the baseline you have is, you know, you have Times New Roman font and yes. you have no margin, no padding or anything. Like, it's like, okay, that works, but that's not even a, an acceptable baseline for, like, no one would make a web page that looks like just an, un, an unstyled page today. It it's is terrible. very bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why. Like I still, to I mean, I know the historical context of why Times New Roman and it has to do with Microsoft and stuff like that, but right. we're in 2017 historical. and no one, <laughs> no browser maker bothered to fix that. It just, it's mind boggling, but yeah, right. that's another topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think it's important because to me, that's where, you know, say I'm just going to make an empty web page. Someone says, Hey, I need to make a website for my band. Could you help me? I'm like, um, you probably shouldn't ask me, but okay. I could like do something and I could, I would immediately get stuck on just you're saying, okay, spacing, you know, how high should this navigation menu be? How much margin should there be between, you know, around the body of this text? I have no idea. I'm floating in space. I have no <laughs> starting point. I have no idea of what, where to begin with. Just it's, like you said. Yeah. It's also like this thing you're saying. To be honest, it's pretty much how I feel, and I'm pretty sure how a lot of designers feel, is that why is it the last thing that people learn is because there is no book you can open and start learning about like spacing and how elements relate to each other in white space. They're, sure, they tell you what is white space, but they don't tell you what is good white space or bad white space because there isn't such a thing. It depends on the colors you use, the font you use, mm. even the thing you want to convey. Like if you want to convey something that's very soothing and spacious, then you use a little bit more. But if you want something more like tight and in like something more 
technical or engineering related, then you want it to be tighter. And even for, for me, who have been doing this for years. I still, I do something and I come back a week later and ah, this is not exactly it. It needs a bit of nudging here and there. And I mm. do it and then I leave and come back and then it's an eternal like exercise. And of course it, it gets good past a certain point. But it's hard to tell someone why this is good. And you can, you can say it sometimes like, Oh, I feel like the text doesn't have enough room to breathe. But hey, what is room to breathe for? Is there a mathematical formula that you can take a, a font size? And there is approximations like a font size. There's like a coefficient. And then you use that to know at least how much padding you need to have the minimum kind of required padding. Okay. But it, it's not like a rule that everyone should apply. Like you should, you could go a bit more than that. Maybe not less than that, unless you intentionally want the text to feel like it doesn't have room to breathe. I don't know mm. if, if it's part of your messaging or, or whatnot, but still it's, it's not a, a skill. You can just open a book, read it and bam, you have it. So I totally understand. And specifically for web design, that problem, it applies for everyone regardless of whether you have done design or not, is, okay, where do I start? They call it, I think, the white canvas syndrome or whatever. It's uh -huh. Like, you have a white page. Like, if you just make an right. empty HTML document, it's a white page. And everything floats left, is in Times New Roman, and it just, like, goes on forever. So it just goes from, from edge to edge of the of the viewport. Speaking of which, currently we have done, we have put a web view in an app I'm working on at work. And mm -hmm. we didn't bother putting any CSS and I forgot about it. And then I looked at it yesterday and I was, oh my God, why is it so bad? Why can't browsers and web views just have a little bit, like just want a padding and a nicer font. That's all I asked right. for, for a start. And even that, it's not a thing. And it's funny because I remember when, I remember when CSS, when I, when I first heard of CSS in the nineties and it was saying, oh, well, this is going to be a thing where you can have these, style sheets, cascading style sheets, right? And you'll have, you could have a local style sheet that could be a baseline and then that could be overridden by what's on a website. And like there was talk about that, you know, a browser could have a built-in, like a default yeah. CSS that would apply, here's the styling for body text, mm. you know, in lack of anything else. And I seem to remember that like this browser I was using on OpenStep back then, this thing called OmniWeb, which I guess still exists in the Mac, right? I think Omni still has OmniWeb. I seem to recall that had a feature. Maybe, that, maybe it was a different browser. But one of the browsers had a feature where you could just sort of say, in the preferences, pick out a local CSS file and say, here's the style for anything that's unstyled, give it this. Yeah, for everyone's info, it's also possible in Safari. It is. Today, yeah. And I have a default style sheet, which is like three lines. Just change Times New Roman to San Francisco so that it mm -hmm. appears more like a system font and I add a padding. But cool. yeah, this feature is, I think Chrome also has it, but I've never used it. I think we've talked about it in this podcast as well at some point. And that's good. But what would be even better if, if the browser supported like style sheets per domain? And now you can do that with extensions but they're not really well integrated in the, in the browser. I'd like to just go to preferences and say, okay, for this domain, please use this style sheet. And mm -hmm. not even that. What if, what if browser makers like just had a really good base style sheet? And then you can disable that if, if you want or, or, you know, replace it. Like Safari allows you to add a CSS and Chrome as well. I think so. Mm. Firefox, I think at this point, all of them have this feature, but I'm not sure about okay. the other two. 
but it's it still requires you to go and find that css and right. maybe i could release it i've never actually bothered putting it somewhere some people might find it useful but yeah i feel like it's it's an oversight and people don't care and some people like times new roman so we had one of our colleagues mike used mm-hmm. to like it and likes just having websites like that i mean his own personal stuff right and we and i remember this this argument we used to have or this not argument discussion friendly discussion about that and things like the idea that okay if i have a web browser that i can make arbitrarily wide sometimes i might want to make my window super wide and have that text or whatever the content is flow all the way across because that's the way i'm using the space and if you have a, if you have a design that constrains you to say no this column is no more than 600 points wide that can be a source of irritation it's like if you imagine <laughs> if you have a the photos app on your mac yeah. and it's showing all, all the photos in the grid and you make that window wider and wider and after a certain point it's like nope i'm not going to make that grid any wider i've got a maximum width yeah. that's what styled web can feel like if you're trying to do something else if you like if you have to say it like oh, wow i really want this thing to be wider and i think actually i find this more to be a problem on mobile where mm-hmm. if you have something that is, that is constrained to certain sizes and you're sitting there trying to zoom in and out on your phone or rotate your phone to make it actually fit and make it actually work. Whereas you know that, okay, if this page just had the CSS just removed, I could view it just fine on my phone. But, <laughs> but the true. choices they've made for for how this text layout is going to work means that this size of device just doesn't work because they haven't considered mobile and they've constrained it to a desktop profile. Yeah, that is that is true to a certain degree because when you have the rationale behind limiting the maximum i'm not talking about the minimum but the maximum Mm -hmm. is that text becomes really hard to read when the line length is too long there are different like numbers but you can just google them was it 75 letters i actually forgot exactly the Mm -hmm. the figure and that's why a lot of people just just, you know like have a, a maximum width but I think a lot of this will be a bit nicer as soon as the CSS grids become a thing. So you could have a magazine-style layout where text flows from one column to another. And with that, you can just make sure that you, you when the screen is too large, you can show everything without having to scroll using okay. columns. But I haven't played too much with CSS grids, so I'm not sure to what extent you can make the number of columns change. But I'm pretty sure it's possible. To come back to the topic of just design and quality of design, you mentioned that you can know bad design. And I'm really curious, like, if you can know what is bad design, can't you just apply that to your own designs? Like, you make something and you look at it and say, okay, this is bad. I could probably fix this. To some extent, yes. I think that I am pretty capable of doing that if I know the tools for what the underlying thing is. So mm. when it comes to iOS development, I feel like I'm pretty good at that. Like I, I know how to style a table you sell and make it look the way I want to look. Mm. When it comes to web, that's where I'm, you know, it's not only that, like I was talking about, that's a blank slate, but it's also just that like, I am so bad at using CSS for layout. Mm. There are just so many things that I don't like this whole floating thing. Like yeah. I, it just—it's always seems very counterintuitive to me, and I've never learned it properly. Just like everyone else, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to meet someone who says, "Oh, I love doing layout in CSS. My favorite thing." <laughs> I mean, they might be, but those are people who have never done anything 
outside CSS. And right. that's the only source of truth they have. But as soon as you look outside and you see that there are better ways to do things, then you realize, all right, I'm done with this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and to me, like the whole CSS box layout system, it just seems like it's, I don't know, like who is this for? Who can look at this and think, yep, that's, wow, that's perfect. Like you said, like who can say that that seems like a really good way to design a layout system? I think it's, if you look at the contextual, the history of it, it might make sense. So before everything was, as you said, full width, and of course, screens were small, so people didn't really complain much. But at some point, people wanted to put like articles on the web. And for, mm. to put an article, you need basically three things. You need some padding around it, so around the text, and you need be able to float images in line with text, either left or right, because that's mm. what most magazine look, looked like back then. Sure. And that's pretty much it. And that's exactly where they started. Like, okay, let's start with the concept of margins and padding so that we can space paragraphs and make them either further apart or closer. Mm. And then let's put images so that you can float them left or right and they they would appear in line with text without much work. And I guess people were super surprised back then. Like, wow, this is so easy to do. I can just put an image, give it a width and float it left. And I would have my text to the, to the right and the image to the left. That's great. I don't have to do any pixel precise like stuff. I think it made sense back then when everything was hmm. a single column that's probably spanning the entire screen with a small padding around it and then images floating left and right or center depending even though centering was and is still tricky to this day depending on what display you have and right. display property i mean that stuff i guess made sense back then but now people want to make full-fledged apps they want to make crazy layouts they want to make a lot of stuff and of course, it's going to fall short because it's not... When people sat down and made that, they were not thinking of single-page applications or right. anything of that kind. It's getting better. Like, Flexbox is nicer to use in a mm -hmm. lot of cases. It's more made for... I, I know you have been hearing a lot about Flexbox. I'm not sure how much you know about it or whether you tried to use it or not. I have not tried to use it. I really don't know much about it at all. Well, if I can use comparison, it's something like stack views in Apple okay. ecosystem, minus some features that make stack views more powerful than Flexbox. But it's kind of the same idea as like float. Uh, do we want this to go horizontally or, or vertically? And mm -hmm. do we want these elements to be equal with or whatnot? So it's similar to that. And I've been using it a lot since it became more widespread in browsers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but overall, like, yeah, you still have to deal with floats every once in a while and, and, and things like that. So Flexbox is, it's this is a CSS feature yeah. that browsers began to support at some point in time. Yes, exactly. And it's supposed to be used for things like galleries or just a collection. It, I think of it like a collection view, a less mm -hmm. powerful one, because you could put basically, if you have four buttons and you want each one of these buttons to be one third, then you will have three buttons in mm -hmm. one line, and then the fourth one will be in the second line. And then with Flexbox, you can say whether you want it to be aligned to the left, to the right, or centered, and then that's it would do it. And if you add another one, it would just like a fifth one. Then it would have three at the top and two at the bottom. And you can okay. also say if you want the two at the bottom to span the entire space so they become a bit larger than the ones above them, 
or mm-hmm. to stay the same size as the one above them and put space around them or between them. So the kind of thing. And it's good for UI because that's a lot of, a lot of cases you have a bunch of buttons or things that you want to be stacked in a certain way. Right. So I believe it's a, a step forward, but not as, cause we, we already had auto layout in mobile development or at least in iOS for mm-hmm. quite a while. Yeah. And it takes so much for the web to catch up with the native counterparts in this regard because the process is slow. It's not like Apple just snapping a finger and saying, okay, this year we're introducing this new thing that you can use right. immediately. No, it's like the W3C and all of the processes of like going from a draft to recommended to whatnot. And then browsers, right. they have to implement it and then users have to be aware of it somehow. Yeah. And be aware that it's implemented now. So it's, it's a lot longer process by nature. Yeah. It's interesting how much that process is similar to making the laws. It is. <laughs> like the legislative <laughs> process. Like there's, you have this sort of governing body that's going to discuss things and have motions and have counter motions and all this stuff. And then eventually trickles down into someone, it passes on to the executive branch, which is the people making the browsers who say, okay, now we'll actually implement this thing. That's very good analogy. Whereas when Apple decides to do something, they just can decide and say, okay, this year it's here and it'll be here from now on. And at some point you got to start using it if you, if you, you know. Apple, they only do executive orders. Yes. It's all executive <laughs> orders. <laughs> all right. This year we're, we're taking away auto layouts. No more <laughs> auto layout. I'm wondering what we're going to have this year in terms of that, but let's leave this for another podcast or by the way, we should plug your, your podcast build, build face. Yes. So I'm doing another podcast called build phase that I've been doing for a while. We've slowed down our rate of production pretty drastically lately. We need to get some more coming, but we're going to have some more people on board and doing more stuff. But beyond that, there's a lot of history. If you want to hear, hear some guys talking about iOS development and Swift and all that stuff, there are, there's hours and hours of enjoyment to be had there. Yeah. Definitely. I will put the link in the show notes. So you make games, right? Right. And I was always curious how you you go from idea to something that people can see. And because that's that's actually design. Basically, design is not whether it's good or not. It's more like it's a process. Right. And it's not regardless of the result. And going from from idea to something visual involves a certain exercise. I'm curious, like, how you approach that. Because we'll put also the links to your games in the show note, because I think they're, they're very, they have a really nice touch of whimsical and, and fun. What do you say? Well, I think it varies quite a bit. And like, I should say, I worked a few years at an actual game company or a digital toys company called Tokoboka that makes apps for kids. And there mm. I was working as a developer, not as a designer, but mm. I was usually working right next to a designer and we were working in tandem to build things but for my own games i guess my approach has usually been that i've had an idea and usually along with the idea of the game i usually have an aesthetic in mind of of kind of how i want it to look so the very first game that i wrote a thing called scribattle or that's not the first game ever the first ios game yeah it was inspired by a sort of pen and paper game that we used to play when i was a kid and so Uh my immediate thought was okay i'm gonna just make this look like like it's on a piece of paper. So I scanned a piece of graph paper and that's the actual background. And then all the <laughs> graphics are just things that I doodled on paper and then scanned them. And so there are things where there are, there are a few characters have a few kind of different frames of animation of sorts. And I 
I sort of just drew with a pen each little element, and then some of those are things that can be rotated in slightly different ways to make things happen. It's all—it's not a lot of animation, but it's—it's it's most of the animation because it's just things moving around the screen and rotating. But like for me, that was always very clear. I never really had in mind that I would try and do something that looked any different than what it was. Like I—I I had from the beginning the idea that okay, this is just going to look like look like pen and paper. But yeah. Then much later, I made a game. That was totally different. This was during, remember the Flappy Bird epidemic? Yes. Of, of 2012, 13? Mm, no, 14. More, 13 maybe. or 14, yeah. So I made my own Flappy Bird clone called Flippy Bit. <laughs> which is I love all, that one. It's all just like, it's all just squares. And it's very much designed to look like this isn't a game that you could have played on an Atari 2600 in 1978 it's just squares just bright you know not even brightly colored sometimes really weirdly colored so actually what i did is i went online and found what was the color palette of the atari 2600 uh-huh. and i used combinations of colors from that so that there's no mistaking like it had a lot of colors so that machine had a palette of 128 colors not terrible but it's also kind of you know it's not just it's not just any 128 out of all the millions we have available now it's a specific set yeah so it has it has a certain sort of look that is very different from the look of a, say, a Nintendo game or even of an course. Intellivision game. They all had different palettes that kind of wow. s- suggest different things. And so I found a web page that described those colors, and I converted those into UI colors and just made my game based off of that and tried to make it so that, for the most part, there's nothing there that you couldn't have done back in the day. There was one little thing where I think when you actually die and your bit so your thing that's jumping around on the screen is actually just a tiny square that is your yeah. bit instead of a bird <laughs> and i think when that hits something to die it can actually spin uh-huh. which is not something that you would have ever seen on it's like a 3d uh like transform actually there's two things so when you hit the screen to make it jump it actually does a 3d transform like it actually flips over yeah. the x-axis of itself hence the so name which makes, it, which makes it looks like it just kind of shrinks and gets larger again but it's actually yeah. flipping. ah i see but then when it bumps into something it can rotate in the, the z-axis based on what, if it just hits a corner then it will kind ah. of spin a little bit so when it's falling it can rotate a bit i see yeah i mean the name is flip a bit so you're leaking implementation details <laughs> in, the, <Yes. laughs> in the name <laughs> i can tell you right now this thing is flipping I feel like in games, the idea of keeping it simple to make it look okay actually works more than UI. Because like in mm. a game, like there is no too simple for a game. Like you could just be lines like Pong and it still would be fun. Right. Or like Tetris, like just squares. So in games, I feel like the spacing thing is not an issue because the, the goal is not like to read. Or, unless your game is an RPG that involves a lot of text or like text-based mm. adventure. Text is not important and spacing in general is not important as much. Mm. So I feel like that approach works a lot better. And that's something that I definitely notice when I'm playing games on my iPhone that are ported from a desktop game. They'll usually have a whole lot of work put into the graphics that end up on the iPhone screen, they're so small that I'm thinking, geez, they could have just thrown it all away <laughs> and just, just use squares, just use like lines and triangles and, and circles. And That's true. The ga- and, the, and the gameplay, like you said, the game would have been identical and would have been just as fun. Yeah. Like I feel like all that, all that attention to detail is kind of wasted on the five-inch screen because like, well, I, yeah, I can kind of see something's going on there, but I can't really see it the way I would on, on a big screen. Yeah. I guess they also like, think a lot of developers they want to have multi-platform so they make one set of assets yeah. for iphone ipad 
maybe i don't know later like console or even steam i don't know so yeah they want the same set of assets but i i I hear your point it's actually fairly true in my experience i was playing one game i forget what it's called it's like a you i don't know even what what style of game this is you basically have a number of kind of quests where you have these these characters they're all sort of these steam-driven robots they're kind of pirates and they're going around attacking other (laughs) ships and stealing their stuff and it's all these little robots they have a lot of a lot of graphical detail on them that I can I, I can see is there, but I can't really see it properly because it's so small uh. on the screen. And like there are all these things you can choose different hats for your robots. <laughs> and I'm like, man, these hats are you know eight pixels across on the screen. Like yeah. I can't really. I'm sure on a desktop it was fine, but when it comes on iPhone, it's like, wow, this is you know, like it's it doesn't look bad at all, but it just looks like there's stuff going on there that I know that I can't. I can't even really perceive properly. Maybe just because you have you don't have the plus phone, right? So yeah, maybe. Yeah, but, I mean, know. I've got an iPhone seven, but it's you know, it's imagine big playing enough. that on yeah. <laughs> imagine playing on an iPhone four, four S. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'll I'll put some of the the links that you want for these games on the if you have links for them. I'm not sure if they're still around or or yeah, not. Yeah, I do. A couple mm-hmm. of my games have actually fallen off the App Store. They began, <laughs> they began doing a purge last fall of games oh, that, yes. that had not been uh, updated. That thing. And one of them, like <laughs> one one of my games that I haven't even t- talked about here, the I Apple submitted. It, yeah, I submitted it version 1.0 in May of 2009, and have never updated it. <laughs> they're like okay okay that's old it played still perfectly it doesn't now because now it's gone but up until then it still played just like it did th- on day one even on the latest you know on an on a six plus but maybe um, because you didn't have the uh full screen thing on larger phones right it would have been sort of letterboxed and it was 32 bit of course so there are technical reasons they want to get rid of those old things also <laughs> and that particular one i kind of looked into it and i built that using an old version of what's it called cocos, cocos 2d yeah. cocos 2d and i tried getting it running again in today in xcode i mean not today but a few yeah, months well, yeah. ago in xcode and like I, I got it to compile and run eventually but because of the way cocos 2d deals with screen sizes like I think already back then in 2009, I was doing hacks to make it do what I wanted to do, and then uh-huh. of course things have changed, and the way orientation works has changed. It's like oh, I couldn't get it to work. But the other one that they, they also took down though, Screw Battle, which I mentioned, which is like a sort of paper and pen style thing, that was I kind of entirely hand rolled based on some early example code that Apple had. So it's more straight OpenGL for actually drawing the stuff, and I've got that almost working. So that will hopefully be out again soon revived for yeah. 2017 i feel like they shouldn't have done i mean they should have done it for certain apps but like for games having it run like uh letterboxed and is kind of nostalgic isn't it right like this is where the iphone came out and this is what games looked like on the iphone and it has a nice like retro feel already like it's been what seven years now that they well, no is it more than that well, I think it's 10 years now. Uh, iPhone was around since 2007. Yeah, the SDK came out in, in yeah 2008. So it already yeah. feels like, okay, a decade-old game. I would like to have that on the store, but it's okay, it's kind of sad. People who have it installed would keep it, though. But I wonder yeah. if someone had it still on their phone. <laughs> Some people probably do. I mean, I had, especially the light version, that had over a million downloads of that Oh wow! at some point. So there are probably st- a few people who still have it. What I did find out, though, is that if you only have iCloud backup and then you want to 
image a new phone from your iCloud backup, those old games are gone. Uh huh. That's removed games are actually gone, which is a bummer. That's bummer, but also not good on Apple's side. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I have some other games that I used to have games from Llamasoft. This guy Jeff Minter in, in the UK, mm. and he put a bunch of games out in 2012, 13, and they're still out, but they're not on the Swedish App Store anymore. Uh huh. And so I noticed after I set up my new phone. And I was like, hey, where are these games? And they were like, all of his games that I had bought, I'd spent money on several years ago. They're all just gone from my phone and they're not retrievable again. I guess if I wanted to, I could somehow switch my phone to the UK app store and and pick them up again because I have, I bought them all or, but I don't know. Yeah. It would work, but it's a, a big hassle. And Apple like doesn't allow you to switch countries above a certain number of times in a certain Mm -hmm. period. So it's not good. And I, th- I think it's not good because it, it breaches one of the important principles of software design is that you should not lose like user data. And right. An iCloud backup is supposed to back up your phone, like without question, like just back this entire phone. So if you are picky and you select what to back and what to not, then you're already breaching that principle. Right. You're, exactly. Like, you're losing my data. <laughs> right. Look, I've always ex- expected that I can, you know, if I lose my phone, I can anytime you know, get a new phone and restore it from my backup and it'll have, you know, what I had up to just before I lost it. So I learned something last, last fall that's like, nope, but <laughs> those, it's apps are gone, those apps are gone just from your regional store you use for some reason. Yeah. And they're gone from your backup. I mean, the app store as a whole is not really a place where you buy stuff. It's a rental. I just think of it as rental. Mm. It's another like topic, but I feel like that's how I think of it like I'm renting this app pretty much and one day it could be pulled or it could be removed or stop working so and software in general it's yeah. I mean long gone are the days where you had like CDs for like Photoshop and this and that at least like you owned the CD which gave you like some sort of like physical ownership over this, this thing as long as the CD works is not scratched and it can be read by a computer you can run the software there was no you know pinging home and checking if I mean, at some point they added that, right. but but yeah, like I think you like you said, the the rental model is more accurate to what they're actually doing. And probably if you bother to read the the EULA in iTunes that everyone jokes about scrolling past, that's probably essentially what it says. Like, <laughs> like you know, you can pay for this stuff, but there's no guarantee. It probably even says in there we re- we reserve the right to remove content that you know for whatever reason, anytime. Right. Oh well. Oh well. As you say, I think we're we're hitting the perfect time to to wrap up. Excellent. Thank you for taking the time to wake up uh, on no, a, on a weekend. For me. It's, it's been, it's <laughs> it's, been fun. It, yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to uh, Tentative 36. You can find the show notes on tentative.fm slash 36. You can follow us on Twitter at tentative.fm, one word. And you can uh, rate us on iTunes. And we only accept five stars. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And... Bye. Bye. (laughs)